In this episode, we focus on the sense of sight and how it may be impacted by autism. We discuss visual sensory symptoms and related visual impairments. Welcome to Embracing Autism, a podcast for parents of autistic children seeking advice and support while spreading awareness and acceptance of autism spectrum disorder. I'm Leah. And I'm Matt. And each week we will discuss our journey with autism and talk about how to embrace your child's individuality while providing guidance, tips, resources, and sharing our personal stories. This is Embracing Embracing Autism. Autism. Hey everyone, and welcome to the episode where we are going to be focusing on our first sense, which is sight or vision, kind of. (laughs) All things sight related. All things with your eyeballs. So the reason that we chose to go with sight first is essentially because I think that was one of the first ones that we noticed with our kid. She definitely had some like visual stimming behavior. Mm. Yeah, it was definitely the thing that stood out the most that we thought that at least gave us a red flag that she might have some type of uh, sensory uh, over... Over sensitive? No, under sensitivity. Because if she's seeking it, then she's under sensitive. But uh, it's literally would remind me about like the moth attraction to the flame. You know, like she literally was like that. And it pretty much was. I mean, you turn on a bright light and she was attracted to it. And then when you turned it off, she'd still be trying to to get to it. Yeah, (laughs) actually, we had to hide. We have some of these like emergency LEDs in the house for like when your power goes out and you push the button, it's got some bright LED lights that you can put around your house. We ended up having to hide them because she was finding them and turning them on and putting them literally right on her eyeballs. Right. And it's still, I mean, ongoing today, I would say, I was trying to change her diaper and I have my flashlight on my phone to be able to see when it's nap time, when everything's dark. And she was still grabbing my phone and trying to stare directly into it. So it's still an (laughs) ongoing sensory seeking activity even to this day. Yeah, actually, that reminds me. I've been trying to videotape her on the phone. And if the video camera has the light on it, I can't videotape her because she gets right up on the screen. So she's staring straight at the light. And as you guys can imagine, that's problematic because having a very bright LED light shining directly into your eyeball can't possibly be healthy for your eyes. Right. So if you've noticed anything like that with any of your children, then this episode might be for you. (laughs) (laughs) So again, just a reminder, when we say stimming, that's like self-stimulatory behavior, usually in the sensory avenue. So in vision or in sight, There's different types of stimming or visual stimming behaviors. There's a couple of them that we'll talk about in this episode, some that our child has experienced and some that they haven't, but we'll touch on anyway. So just to set the stage a little bit on why sight and vision was so important to us, there's actually been a lot of studies that have shown that autism is at least 10 times as common among blind people as it is among the general population. And also autistic children may also be more likely to have vision problems than their typical peers. So this was one of those senses that was particularly interesting to us because of that. There's actually been studies that are published, one as recent as earlier this year in January 2021. Researchers reviewed medical records of more than 10 million children. And in that study, they found that 13.5% of autistic children were found to have vision disorders. And this is compared to just 3.5% of typical children. So children with autism essentially were found to have about five times as likely as typical kids to have things like a nystagmus, which is where the eyes kind of move back and forth really quickly. 
and they found that they're 3.5 times as likely to have a strabismus and 2.5 times as likely to have amblyopia, which are also other visual impairments. I think our kid had one of those, right? I I want to say, was it just our oldest? Yeah, I or... think it was just the oldest okay. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we first discovered that probably in uh, occupational therapy. I think they had her on a platform swing. And I think they were spinning her around and then they would stop her and they would look at her eyes to see if her eyes were still trying to like travel in the same direction that she was going. And they said there was like a slight delay from when they stop her, her, her eyes were still going. So I think that, that I'm going to mispronounce whatever that is actually called. So I'm just going to. Nystagmus. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, the issue with nystagmus is, and this is something that our kid has run into, is it can potentially lead to vertigo. And vertigo is kind of like, you know, that overwhelming dizzy sense. And so I think our child is I, one of those people. Right. I'm, I think we might have experienced that by mistake. I was in charge of this so i'll take full blame here i think it was both of our girls in their little teardrop swing is that what it yeah i think it's a teardrop swing and i was just swinging them kind of around doing like figure eights and things singing the tequila song (laughs) yeah but ultimately we'll fast forward um after we finished and we had gotten them off the swings um our oldest still wanted to stay on the swing but then within what like five minutes she had she had like it was so bizarre. Was, yeah. She seemed fine when she got off the swing, but as soon as we got her in the house, she just started getting sick everywhere. Right. And and she she didn't want to come off of the swing. She wanted to stay on the swing. And then we had said, oh, no, okay, swing time's all done. And we had done the transition out. And then basically as soon as we had gotten her inside, she immediately threw up. Yeah. I mean, we don't really know why she seems to be okay. Like, like she doesn't seem to show any signs of distress. I think it might just be that whole, like, body awareness issue where some autistic kids and adults can't really feel when they're about to get sick. I had spoken to an autistic adult one time online and they were talking about how every single time they had to go get sick, they would never make it to the bathroom because they didn't know that they had to get sick until like five seconds before they got sick. So they weren't getting the signals from their body to let them know that. So and that and that's exactly what we witnessed. It was her I think she was still upset that she wasn't on the swing and then in a fraction of a second she was getting sick and we're like kind of where did that come from like you you weren't letting us know in any way that you were nauseous or feeling uncomfortable in any way yeah so if you feel that your kid may be getting sick randomly like that or if you feel like they're getting nauseous or something whenever they're doing some sort of motion type of behavior it might be that they have a nystagmus or something like that you might just want to get that checked out by a pediatrician or an OT you can bring it up with them and a lot of them know how to check for that so you can ask them as well and that would be the same thing with the other things the strabismus and amblyopia which are other similar but slightly different eye issues. And I think for us, as soon as we kind of learned that that was the situation, we were able to kind of stay a little bit more focused on any type of motion activity. It's not too crazy, too out of hand when she goes on the merry-go-round. It's very slow. It's not too crazy as far as spending too fast that she might get sick. And so far, that seems to have kind of helped overall. And then some of the other things that are kind of related when it comes to sight and autism is they have actually found that there is a connection between eyes and autism and vision. One of the studies that I saw 
actually said that there is no reward that is sent to the brain and eye gaze. And this is actually very interesting because it makes sense. So there's a part of your brain that is responsible for sending you kind of like a little a little reward, a little dopamine hit, a little serotonin hit. And that system is what makes your brain want to repeat behaviors. So whenever that system is lit up, you essentially are training your brain to want to continue doing that behavior. So what some studies have found is that for some reason in autistic children and adults, that pathway is not working as it does in neurotypical people. So whenever we look at somebody and the eyes, typically there is that little dopamine or serotonin hit and that rewards us and it trains us to essentially be like, okay, I'm going to keep looking at eyes because I like the feeling that my brain gets. But studies have actually found that that doesn't happen in autistic kids. There is no reward being sent to the brain during eye gaze. So that was actually really interesting. And the other study that I found associated with that also said the amygdala, which is kind of part of the brain that's associated with not really like bad feelings, but it's kind of like an emotional area of the brain. It says that that area overactivates with eye gaze. So that makes sense. You've got two things going on here. One is there's no reward. So there's no point, right? Like, why would you do something if you're not getting rewarded for it in your brain? And then the other thing is, if you are gazing at somebody's eyes, and then you get kind of like a negative emotional feeling reaction in your brain, you're also not going to want to do it. So it's like getting hit from both sides. I was gonna say it's kind of the two forces acting against any type of reason to look someone in the eyes, which would make sense. I mean, ultimately, if it's a uh, like... I don't want to say punishment, but if if there's no added benefit and then it's, I don't want to say painful to you to look someone in the eyes, then why would you ever want to? I mean, there's been autistic adults who have said that it actually is literally painful. Like there's some autistic adults out there I've spoken to that said it physically is painful to them. So it just depends on the kid, but it could be. I mean, I never knew that before. I mean, that gives a whole new perspective as far as like if your child is looking at the ground, not acknowledging you or looking you in the eyes, that something else is at play. It kind of changes your reality of like, okay, maybe getting upset with them or saying, oh, why aren't you looking at me might not be the best approach given what we've just learned. Exactly. And it's not necessarily a sign of disrespect. Like it's just literally it's painful or bothersome to them. It's like it's like forcing us to stare into the sun and you're like, why aren't you staring? into the sun and you're like I mean I would but I can't it hurts you know so that was interesting and if I find that study again I'll put it in the show notes for you guys but let's go ahead and start going over some of the visual sensory symptoms that have been found as well and I think that also makes sense as why we actually see visual stimming take place sometimes you might have some kids who might squint and not have full eye contact with you I think our oldest would kind of look out of the corner of her eyes whenever we were kind of talking to her. And then also, I'm not sure if our oldest one had done it, kind of the rapid blinking. So those are just a couple of vision stimming things we've seen. Yeah, and that's in addition to the staring at the bright lights. And oh, you know, another one that I remember is remember she would stare at ceiling fans when they were turned on. That's true. Yeah, every time she would go in a room, if there was a ceiling fan that was spinning, she would just turn up and stare at them and just stare and was kind of like mesmerized by it. Right. And I think, I mean, we were trying to look for healthy ways to actually work with her since she was drawn to the light. And I think we actually found like a couple little plastic wands that had different color lights, but they weren't at the same wattage or whatever whatever you consider as like some of the lights we have it was i mean more of a dull light but since it was colorful and it was spinning she was satisfied looking at that and thankfully it wouldn't hurt her eyes as would like a regular like led light for example so like our recommendation is if you have a kid who is attracted to really bright lights what we did is we got 
they're kind of like those spinning ones that you get at like Disney World and like yeah, things like that. They have like all the flashing yeah, like the colors. Di- right, like the Disney wands or like scepters yeah. or whatever. Little princess they- wands. Right. Those things, the lights on those are, are bright, but they're not like harshly bright like a lot of lights that use to light your house. So we swapped it out with that instead and then we didn't have a problem with her and staring I, at And those. I would say another thing that also was super helpful was uh, glow sticks. Oh, yeah, that's um, true. Go to the dollar store, get a pack of glow sticks. And she was obsessed with the different colors of glow sticks. And, of course, there's basically no light whatsoever that's emitted from that unless you're in a dark room. But I thought that worked out well as kind of a nice transition off of the bright lights for her. Yeah, so glow sticks are another good go-to with a duller light. The only caution there is if your kid is super oral-seeking, you want to be careful because you don't right. want them to chew those and then get the liquid out of it. So just keep an eye if your kid is also a chewer. Glow sticks might be not so great for them. When it comes to the visual sensory symptoms, there's actually the difference between like the hyposensitive and the hypersensitive types of visual stimming and visual sensitivities. Some autistic individuals are more hypersensitive visually. So that means that they're more oversensitive. And when they're oversensitive, it means that they probably are more hyper aware of the visual aspect of their surroundings than your peers are. Okay, so this would essentially be the kids who would essentially kind of shy away from bright lights. So it would be kind of the opposite of what we've kind of experienced with our oldest daughter. So I'm assuming this would be kind of, you would want the sunglasses trying to like dim the lights down in this situation for these kids. With hypersensitive kids, these are the ones that are going to be more sensitive to sunlight and things like that. There's actually some things that you can do with that. So you can give them sunglasses to help them out. There's actually in states, even states where it's currently illegal to tint your windows dark, your car windows, you can actually get a special prescription in many states to get special permission to tint the windows of your car darker so that your kid doesn't get affected by the sunlight. So there's a couple of things you can do just for that. But with the hypersensitive kiddos, they also are able to sometimes focus on really tiny pieces of dust particles in the air. They might, like Matt said, dislike bright lights. And surprisingly, sometimes they might dislike the dark as well. They might be the ones that are, you know, more averse to sharp flashes of light. So they might be cowering away from lightning because the light is just too harsh for them. So if you notice that your kid is uh, often looking down at the ground or might be covering their eyes frequently, it could be something such as a visual stim. I'm just thinking of like on a very bright day, you might see like a kid not wanting to look up because obviously the sun all around them might be too overstimulating. So by focusing on the ground, it probably helps, makes it a little easier to try and see without having to really open their eyes too much. Yeah. So some kiddos that are hypersensitive, they might just cover their eyes whenever they're around bright lights for that reason, because it might be overstimulating to them. If you see that your child is avoiding light, or if you see that they walk with their head down or looking on the ground or looking at their feet when they walk or anything like that, that might be a signal that maybe they have some sort of hypersensitivity to light and you might want to get that checked out with like an OT or something. There's also kids who are polar opposite. Right, which is the category that our daughter would fall into. So we already kind of mentioned that she would be undersensitive to light, which means she's seeking it out. So And that is hyposensitive. Mm-hmm. Hy- the first one was hyper, and this is hyposensitivity. Right. So she would be, I mean, like I think you mentioned before, kind of like a moth to a flame. Just she, <laughs> she will seek out any type of bright light and kind of go towards it. So, I mean, that's kind of the big factor there that we noticed that that was kind of a red flag. And it doesn't necessarily have to be light either. Sometimes kids who are hyposensitive, they might just look really intensely at objects or people. 
You might see them with their fingers, kind of waving their fingers in our eyes, or you might see them kind of staring at their hands. And actually, we also noticed that her obsession with, I guess, mirrors, kind of seeing yes. her herself in the mirror, kind of the reflection, the light, and then her interaction with her hands and kind of waving and smiling. She was very interested in that as well. Our eldest one is still to this day super interested in her reflection in a mirror. I think sometimes she'll notice it and just like in passing and then it just catches her eye and she's got this big smile on her face and she's like, ooh, what's that? I like it. It's shiny. Needless to say, I think both of our daughters like the the mirror. The mirror. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if that means they're narcissistic. No, I'm just kidding. Mm. Um, But yeah, so having a fascination with reflections, but it can also be with brightly colored objects. So it can be with like really bright colored toys or rooms or anything like that. You might see that they're just like kind of strangely attracted to that color. And I was going to say even in our instance, she was attracted to the white light that we had gotten. She was calling it blue light because she's able to see a blue tinge color that we're not able to. Yeah, it's so weird. So we had these lights, these fluorescent lights, and she would refer to it all the time as blue light, blue light. And we're like, what are you talking about? The light is white. And then we went just out of curiosity because it was happening so frequently and we checked the back of the box and lo and behold, the box says emits blue light. So some of these kiddos, I feel like they can see colors that we can't see because she was able to point out that that light emitted blue light and we could not see blue light. Right. I'm very curious when she's older and actually able to describe it, just to kind of describe the world around you of how you see it and just to kind of get an idea of what she actually sees because all we can do is just kind of guess at this point. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe we'll find out in the future. (laughs) (laughs) And then another one for hyposensitivity is some of these kids might run their hands around the edges of objects or things like that. That's also for like visual satisfaction, basically. But what was really interesting is when it comes to these sensitivities and the stimming, the visual stimming in particular, I found this quote from an autistic person. And this quote is from a book called Nobody Nowhere by Donna Williams. And this quote says, from this autistic perspective, they said, my bed was surrounded and totally encased by tiny spots, which I called stars, like some kind of mystical glass coffin. I have since learned that they are actually air particles, yet my vision was so hypersensitive that they often became a hypnotic foreground with the rest of the world fading away. And that quote to me was really interesting because it depicts from the perspective of an autistic adult that when you see somebody just staring at the air and you're kind of like, oh man, they're just zoned out. It's not that. This person was saying that they were so distracted by all the sparkling lights that looked to them as if it was like the sky full of stars. And to us, it's just dust particles. But to them, they said it was so visually overpowering that they essentially felt like the rest of the world was fading away and that that all they could focus on. That just kind of blows my mind a little bit, just trying to imagine such a totally different world that we aren't able to perceive. Yeah, absolutely. So when you when you talk to autistic adults, sometimes they're able to give you this insight. And this is really interesting to see like another perspective of how they visually might perceive something. Because of that, it's obvious that autistic people tend to have different visual processing. So There's a lot of studies being done in the visual processing and autism. For example, there tends to be a lot of optometric issues, and that's like 21%, for example, we talked about before, they have strabismus compared to just 3.7% of typical children. And strabismus is basically when there is a visual defect where one of your eyes can't focus on an object because of an imbalance in the eye muscles. 
So that is another visual impairment that's found in autistics. So not only the blindness, there tends to be a higher prevalence of autism in blind people, but there also tends to be a higher prevalence of that nystagmus and now the strabismus. There seems to be a strong correlation between visual impairments and autism. Now, I wasn't sure, does that mean that one of the eyes is over-focused from the other one? I'm, I'm trying to... So it's basically saying that it's a defect where one eye can't focus with the other eye on an object. So okay. in order to have depth perception and that's focus, what I was going to say because you would need both. You need both eyes have... to align on the same object at the okay. same time. So strabismus is basically that you can't get those eyes to sync up. Therefore, you can't get kind of that 3D perception So that, that would cause potential struggles with kind of interacting. Depth perception. Right. I was yeah. going to say like if you're, if you're playing a sport, for example, like baseball or whatever. <laughs> so if someone's throwing a ball, being able to gauge how far the object is from you to be able to catch and kind of go from there. So I wasn't sure if that would kind of tie in with some of the, the struggles. Yeah, there so well. if you think about it, like, for example, our kid, our older kid, she has a really difficult time catching a ball. If you throw a ball at her, she doesn't seem to know where the ball is coming from and how to coordinate getting her hands to catch the ball. And I think a lot of that might have to do with that visual impairment, like the depth perception. Okay, I was, I mean, I, I guess I didn't even think about that. I was thinking it more of like the motor planning of if you throw an object at someone, I mean, we're not throwing it super hard at her. So there's going to be a natural arc, but kind of her planning as far as how to catch it. But I, I mean, that's interesting that the vision would play such a, a key role. And it's probably a combination of the two as well. What's interesting is I actually personally did have visual depth perception issues growing up. I actually did go through vision therapy. So the good thing is, even though kiddos may have some depth perception issues, there is therapy for that. When it comes to depth perception and stereopsis, which again, stereopsis is, you know, stereo means using like the left and right of the radio speakers. So stereopsis is like the same thing, but it's like the left and right eye kind of coordinating. So basically what they're saying is that some studies have found that the perception of depth in autism needs to be investigated further because they found that a lot of observations with autistic children is that they tend to misjudge interpersonal distance and social interactions as well. And because of that, they also have issues with like the ball catching. So mm. it doesn't just affect things like play, but It'd it's like that whole aspect as well. Yeah. Like, you know, that whole invasion of personal space. Right. Yeah, so some of that could be, they're saying, the research is saying, some of that could be due to a visual impairment, actually, because they aren't quite sure of the depth perception and, like, where their body should be in space, essentially. Okay, I mean, that's interesting because you just think of how impactful that is just in normal society. If you're going to the grocery store, how far do you stay behind the person in front of you in line? It would be a few feet, but if you're struggling with kind of the gauging of social depth as well, that would kind of come into play there. Exactly. So a lot of times they say autistic kids should get screened for depth perception and stereopsis. And I plan on screening our kids on that because I personally had that issue. And this is something that you're born with. It's a developmental issue. So it's just something that, you know, that's how you were formed in the womb. So there's not really anything you can do about it other than therapy. But it's good to get it evaluated in your kids just in case you would see. I think it's like an ophthalmologist for that. Well, I was curious because that would be different than just a standard vision test. Oh, yeah. No, no. You okay. don't go to like a doctor for a vision test. You go specifically to an eye expert, I believe. Uh -huh. I believe it's an ophthalmologist who does that and they go through specific testing for that. So that's also related to the stereopsis. And I mentioned that word a little bit before, but what that means is it's basically referring to depth perception and three-dimensional structure based on the visual information that you're getting from both of your eyes. 
And that's how you get binocular vision. So that's how you get that 3D perception. So if you don't have that balanced, it's hard for you to see that 3D, which then affects whether or not you got depth perception. Hmm. So what's interesting is that that is something that has been found to be potentially deficient in the autistic population when compared to the neurotypical population. It's still not super high. I think the statistics were just saying it was something between like 21% or something like that. So it's it's less than a third, but it's but still when you're comparing that's it to the, the general, 3.7%. Right. It's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's significant. That's quite, quite higher. <laughs> yeah. And I'd be happy if anyone's interested on that as a topic, just let me know because I'd be happy to go into depth about my experience with vision therapy and everything growing up. So just let me know in some comments at some point and I'd be happy to go over it. The other very interesting thing about this is when it comes to vision and the parts of the brain, they say that there's also something that's called social brain dysfunction in autism. And basically, social brain dysfunction is basically the parts of the brain or the regions of the brain that are all correlated. I'm not going to get into all the literal parts of the brain because there's a lot of them and it can get confusing really Thank easily. You. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but basically, they're the parts of the brain that cover poor facial expression, recognition, difficulties with interpreting eye gaze, problems with sensory integration, and executive function problems. They've essentially found that all of these areas tend to be dysfunctional, quote unquote, in the autistic brain. And vision is one of those areas. So are they all linked together in the brain? Is that why it's so I think it's called social brain because all of these aspects are kind of necessary for social interaction. So like you need well, eye contact. Because well, I was and... going to say, because I understand as far, it, it makes perfect sense as far as the vision component with recognizing like facial expressions. Yes. But I wasn't sure if the others were similarly. Yeah. So like, for example, the amygdala that I mentioned earlier with the eye gaze, like interpreting eye gaze or being able to maintain eye gaze and being able to interpret like that social bubble of not getting into people's interpersonal space. Okay. So basically all these parts are separate brain areas, but you kind of need them all together to be able to socially interact with somebody okay. in what we would consider an appropriate way. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Your neuroscience lesson for the day. <laughs> no, no, no. But, but it's interesting how like vision basically, it's almost like a domino effect for some of the other categories that are similarly linked to that component that factored together into one. Yeah, absolutely. And if you guys are interested in this information, I will put the related studies that talk about this in the show notes and I'll make everything clickable so you guys can see all the information that I'm talking about. But basically, that's a little bit of insight about the visual system and sight when it comes to autism, a little bit of the research that's been done and some of the connections. Again, if you feel like your child may be struggling in this area, I would recommend that they go see a developmental optometrist or an optometric physician, which can also be referred to as an OD. And usually the treatments that are involved here is ongoing treatment that requires daily visual exercises or the use of certain lenses. I'd be happy to go through that in a future episode if you guys are interested. All right. Well, we'll see you later. <laughs> Thanks for sticking around, guys. This is a long episode, but hopefully you learned a little bit about visual stimming and sight and autism. And we'll see you next week. Have a good one. To summarize, we discussed the differences between hypo and hypersensitivities in the visual sensory system and how that may reflect in various forms of stimming. We also discussed the strong correlation between autism and visual impairments such as blindness, nystagmus, strabismus, and amblyopia. 
If you feel your child may display characteristics of visual impairment, consult a developmental optometrist or an optometric physician. Join us in the next episode where we discuss the sense of taste and answer questions such as, why does my child eat inedible objects? How can I stop them from chewing on everything? And what can I do if my child refuses to eat? This is Embracing Autism.